the book of 1 Kings in chapter 16. The book of 1 Kings in chapter number 16. And tonight we're going to begin a little biographical series of the life of Elijah, the prophet. And uh, the Lord's led me into a little study of the life of Elijah and uh, studying this great man of God. And I uh, want to give you, this will be kind of an introduction to the, uh, to the study. And uh, we'll kind of get introduced to Elijah and as much as we can. It's a little tough. There ain't a whole lot about him as far as where he came from and things like that. He just shows up. He just pops up on the pages of the Word of God. And, uh, and I think there's a good application, a good lesson for us tonight. So let's look at our, let's look at our text here tonight, 1 Kings 16. And we're going to begin reading in verse number 29. And what we're going to do is we're going to read about uh, the context of Elijah's ministry, uh, the background uh, as, as far as what's going on during the day that God has called Elijah to minister. Uh, we're going to begin reading in verse 29, 1 Kings 16 and verse 29. The Bible says, And in the thirty and eighth year of Asa king of Judah began Ahab the son of Omri to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria twenty and two years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. In his days did Hiel, the Bethelite, build Jericho. He laid the foundation thereof in Abiram, his firstborn, and set up the gates thereof in his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua the son of Nun. Let's pick up one more verse. Chapter 17, verse 1. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. How many of you would agree with me as we read the uh, description of the days which Elijah was alive? How many would you? How many would you would agree with me in this assessment right here? These are some dark days, very dark days. But then, right in the middle of the darkness, there's a light. Kind of reminds me of John the Baptist just a little bit. 400 years of silence, darkness, and all of a sudden, here comes a shining light, a pointing finger, a crying voice. John the Baptist. Elijah, in many ways, he was a prefigure of John the Baptist. A precursor, uh, a prototype, if you will. That kind of prophet that has... A lonely ministry, an unusual ministry, but he's called to shine a light right in the middle of some of the darkest days imaginable. And I believe that's where we find the ministry of Elijah, in some of the darkest days imaginable. And I want to title this first message as we look at the life of Elijah over the next several weeks. We're just going to title it this, A Light in the Darkness. A Light in the darkness, because that was Elijah. He was a light in the darkness. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We're thankful for your word. Lord, we're thankful, Lord, to have it. It's strength. It 
It's guidance. It's warnings. And one of the things that we pick up from your word is that there's nothing new under the sun. These are not the darkest days that have ever been that we're living in today. Lord, these are not hopeless days. And Lord, just as you had a man of God to stand and shine a light in those dark days that we've just read about, Lord, you have some people that uh, are able, Lord, to stand up and shine a light in these days. And Lord, I pray that some of those Christians would be found amongst the membership of our church here. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to resolve in our spirits tonight to shine a light in the darkness in which we live. And Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, if you want just a little bit of history, I'll give it to you. If you don't want a little bit of history, I'm still going to give it to you. Because I feel like we need to know what in the world is going on here when Elijah comes on the scene. For over 100 years, the nation of Israel knew a measure of stability and a measure of success as they were under the reign of Saul. And I know he wasn't everything that he ought to have been, but there was 20 years of stability they had a king. It could have been a lot worse than what it was, relatively speaking, as we examine these other kings. But then he wasn't on the scene too long when David... Uh, comes on the scene and David reigned for 40 years and David was a man after God's own heart. We're familiar with him. Solomon succeeds his father, uh, David. And though Solomon erred in a lot of ways and did a lot of, uh, a lot of things that uh, were unwise, and that's amazing knowing that he's the wisest man to ever live. He made a lot of foolish decisions, did he not? But yet there was a measure of success. God blessed Solomon's reign. And, uh, and there was, I believe, I believe this, I don't know what you think about all this, but I believe even in Solomon's life, I believe that book of Ecclesiastes shows us that there was a, there was a turning at the end of his life. I, I, believe, uh, I believe the Song of Solomon was written at the beginning of his life, Proverbs in the middle of his life, and Ecclesiastes at the end of his life, a regretful old man, and, and he realizes he made a lot of foolish mistakes in his life, and he's coming back around. God blessed him, and so for a hundred years or so God had given them stability and success. But what happened after that in the kingdom uh, was anything but. In fact, Solomon's son, uh, Rehoboam, uh, succeeded uh, his father and then under him, under his foolish decisions, the kingdom was split. There was a kingdom that was divided. Ten tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. The northern kingdom was known as Israel. The southern kingdom was known as Judah. In fact, if you'll look here, and that's why that might help you make some sense as you read the Kings and the Chronicles as to these uh, uh, lineages and these uh, chronicles of, uh, of, of these kingly reigns here, these monarchs. In verse 29, it tells us that in the 30 and 8th year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab, son of Omri, to reign. So you have Asa in the south, that Judah, that southern kingdom, in his 38th year of, of being a king, Ahab come to power when his father Omri passed away. And the kingdom was divided. And the, the northern kingdom called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. And this divided kingdom, it only lasted just a couple hundred years uh, in this divisive state before it was taken into Babylonian captivity. You remember Nebuchadnezzar comes and then the Medes and the Persians and so on and so forth. That southern kingdom lasted about 300 years without going into captivity before going into captivity. The northern kingdom did not last near as long, about 200 years before going into captivity. And you can understand why when you realize and read the history of these kingdoms and find out that southern kingdom, it lasted just a little bit longer, a hundred years longer before being taken captive. They had 17 kings in all. Eight of them were good and, and, and had a semblance of godliness. They would at least try to walk in the ways of their father David. Nine of them, though, were wicked and did evil in the sight of of the Lord. How many of you those how many of you those phrases are kind of familiar as you read those? They walked in the ways of their father David, or they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And that happens over and over. In the northern kingdom, they had 19 kings. 19 kings and all in the northern kingdom before going into captivity, and 19 of them were evil. They never had one good king. 
the northern kingdom never had one king that ever tried to even uh, walk in the ways of David, uh, to even seek after God. They were all godless, they were all pagans, they were all idolaters, and they did unspeakable wicked things. And so we could understand why it didn't last near as long. Now when we come to our text, we're speaking about the northern kingdom, the one who did not have any good kings. And we're at Ahab. Now we don't need probably a whole lot to say about it, to say a whole lot about Ahab because he's one of the more familiar kings to us, probably because of his, uh, of his wife Hillary, I mean Jezebel. And so you have Ahab and Jezebel, one of the wicked, most wicked couples that ever lived. And, uh, and here they are. And by the way, that's not my commentary. That was God's commentary in the Word of God. I don't know if you picked up on that, but they were more wicked than anybody that preceded them. When we come to our text here, when Ahab comes to power, we're about 60 years into the divided kingdom, this northern kingdom, and it is at an all-time spiritual low. The names Ahab and Jezebel, they are to us synonymous with extreme wickedness. Those that did absolutely, extremely wicked. And I want you to just notice, let's just talk about the dark days just for a minute, and then we'll talk about the shining light that was Elijah. I want you to notice these dark days in Israel they were exceeding dark days. And I use that word because that's the idea that the Word of God gives to us. He uses uh, these uh, terms. They, it was wor- they did more evil in the sight of the Lord, above all that were before Him. And, and verse 33, they, and Ahab did more to provoke the, uh, God of, of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before Him. And so it was the most wicked that it possibly uh, well, I don't know if it possibly could be, but it's most wicked it had ever been up until this point. I want you to notice the exceeding wickedness. That's in verse 30 and verse 33. I just read those. It said that he did, verse 30 and verse 33, I, I want you to notice that it says that he did worse than all of his fathers that were before him. Now, I don't have time tonight to go back through, but I'll give you a little homework. If you've got time this week, go back through and read about I'm telling you, that, that, that is a feat to do more wicked than what his fathers did was actually quite an accomplishment because there are some wicked, wicked uh, activities that have taken place uh, in the lineage of Ahab before Ahab come to power and he excelled them all and not in a good way. Not only exceeding wickedness, but there was exceeding apathy. In verse number 31, I've noticed this phrase, maybe you noticed it too. It says, and it came to pass as if it had been a light thing. For him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Of course, Jeroboam was the first king of the northern kingdom. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, the kingdom was rent in half. Jeroboam became the first king of the northern kingdom. And so he followed the wickedness of Jeroboam, the first king of uh, the uh, northern kingdom, Israel. And I want you to notice that it said he did it as if it had been a light thing. It was no big deal. It's almost like it was wickedness and it was absolutely no big deal at all. Man, does that seem like the day and hour which we live in? Nobody's ashamed of it. Nobody's embarrassed of it. Nobody's trying to hide it. It's a light thing. Sin in our society today is absolutely no big deal. And that's exactly the way it was here. Ahab was wicked and he didn't care who knew it. Ahab was wicked and it was not a big deal to him. I'm going to tell you something. We're in a bad place spiritually when we can not only sin, but we can sin and it's no big deal at all. You're in a bad spot, man, when you can sin and it is not a big deal at all to you. You are in a you're in you're in a spot that is prime for judgment. That's exactly where they were. It wasn't just what they were doing, it's what they thought about what they were doing that was wicked. Exceeding boldness, what I called it, verse number 32. He reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. Now we're taking the nation of Israel, a nation that has been blessed by God, and we are filling the nation of Israel with Baal worship. We're putting up Baal churches all over the land. It's one thing to commit wickedness. It's another thing to push it in God's face. 
That's exactly what the boldness. I'm going to tell you something. We live in some bold. People are bold. Not in a good way either. The Christians are a bunch of wimps and the sinners are a bunch of lions. Bold. They don't care and they will push it in God's face. Man, they march up and down the streets about and proud of killing babies and sodomites getting married, all that stuff. Man, that is boldness right there. Everywhere we look, boldness. Even in the church, man, people are bold. Man, people are just bold. and That's a way to just push it in the face of God. Exceeding wickedness, exceeding apathy, exceeding boldness. I thought about this. It was, it was dark days of exceeding sorrow and misery. There, this is an interesting verse here, verse number 34. It's in verse to me, it's, it's, it almost seems like it might be just a tad out of place, but it's not. It says, in his days, of course, that connects us to Ahab. We don't know if Ahab had what all he had to do with this event that takes place in verse number 34. It was at, at the very least approved by Ahab, if not uh, motivated by Ahab and, and pushed by Ahab. But what happens in verse 34? Hiel, the Bethelite, did build Jericho. Did Hiel the Bethelite build Jericho? Now, does anybody know anything about Jericho? Jericho was the first city that was taken by the Israelites when they crossed the Jordan River. Um, Jericho was the big walled city. Remember, they marched around it. And uh, the walls of Jericho came. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, right? You remember that? And the walls came tumbling. That's where Rahab was. Rahab got saved. How about that? But when those walls of Jericho fell, you can read it in Joshua 6.26. I'm not going to go there tonight, but mark that reference down. When those walls of Jericho fell, Joshua pronounced a curse upon that city. And he said that this city, Jericho, was never to be built back ever again. Uh, they, were, they were not to have a build back better program in Jericho. And the prophecy that was given about Jericho was this, is that the man that takes it upon himself to build back Jericho, that he'll lay the foundation in his firstborn, and he'll set the gates thereof, uh, thereof up in his secondborn. And what that means is, that means... As he's building the foundation of that city, his firstborn child will die. And as he continues on in his rebellion to set up that which God has pushed, put a curse on, he'll have to give his secondborn child as he does the remainder of that building project. And just like God said it would happen, guess what? It happened. Ahab in cohorts with this high L. They decided to rebuild the city of Jericho in direct defiance to the command of God. Almost like they put their finger in God's face and said, We don't care what your word says. We don't care what you say. We're going to do what we want to do. But do you notice that God's word did not fail? Exactly what God said would happen. That is exactly what happened. And there was sorrow in sin. I'm going to tell you what. You you can choose your sin. You can go out into sin if you want to. And you can do all you want to do. But you do not get to choose the consequences of your sin. God's Word is right. And it will always be right. And the wages of sin will always be death. And if you want to live in rebellion against God and test His Word, be ready to pay the price. Amen. That's exactly what we see here. Speaks to us about the sorrowful consequences of sin. Somebody will always have to pay the price for your sin. A lot of times, it's your kids. It's the next generation that picks up the bill when mom and daddy compromise. That's exactly what we see here. And right in the middle of exceeding wickedness and exceeding apathy and exceeding boldness in sin, an exceeding sorrow of sin and misery that sin brings right in the middle of this darkness. Verse 1. There's a light. 
Elijah. His name means Jehovah is God. Here he is. Right in the middle of all that Baal worship. Right in the middle of all the darkness. Right in the middle of all the idolatry and all the, all the paganness that's going on and the wickedness that's going on and, and the most wicked king that's ever lived. God raised up a man and out of nowhere he steps onto the pages of the Word of God and he is a bright and a shining light for God. No background given on Elijah. We don't know who his mom and daddy are. They're, we don't even know where he's from. He's a Tishbite. But nobody even can figure out where Tish is. Is or Tishba or Tishbo. We don't even know what that is. There's no Bible student that can figure out where Tishba is. It's somewhere in the inhabitants of Gilead. That's all we know. We don't know from some little obscure town, uh, some person we don't know his mama, we don't know his daddy, we don't know his lineage, we don't know anything about his background. All we know is that in the middle of all that wickedness, there had been somebody walking with God, and not every knee had bowed to Baal, and not everybody was going along with what was going on in that day. There was a man of God, and a man from God, and a man in love with God who stepped out right in front of the king of the of the of nation of Israel and said it is going to stop raining how about that a light for god nobody from nowhere isn't that, isn't that who god likes to use though doesn't god specialize in using nobodies from nowhere in fact if you think you're a somebody from somewhere you're disqualified Amen. God takes the, the nothings and God takes the nobodies and God takes the person that you think, oh man, God could really use that person. He's not necessarily interested in all that. He's interested in the one that everybody has counted out and that the world despises and the world thinks of nothing. Why? That no flesh should glory in His presence. That God gets all the glory for every bit of it. Amen. That's exactly who Elijah is. That's exactly who God likes to use. You say, I'm a nobody from nowhere. Well, welcome to the Elijah Club. Amen. That's exactly who he was. And I can't help but think, man, as I read all this and read about Elijah, I thought, man, we're living in dark days. We can parallel the days we're living in to these days right here. Wicked leaders and wicked pagan idolatry and just everything's wicked and nobody cares and everybody's just going along with it and, and, just, and there's nobody hardly seemingly that's zealous for God and we're living in these horrible dark days. But I want to tell you what, just because we're living in dark days don't mean you cannot be a light for the glory and honor of God. You stand up and you shine. You stand up for Jesus even if nobody else wants to. Amen. You stand up do something for God even when nobody else will open their mouth. Amen. We can do that. You can do that. Man, just take one. Oh, Elijah. Isn't it amazing? Elijah didn't come into Ahab's throne room. He didn't come with an army. He didn't come, he didn't come with soldiers. He didn't come with a weapon. He come with the Word of God. Come, it's a man that had God on him, and he brought a kingdom to its knees. And all he had was God. Isn't that amazing? That's all you need. You say, I don't have. Oh, if you got God, you got all you need. You and God are the majority against whatever and against whoever's go, whatever the problem may be. Amen. If God be for us, who can be against us? Amen. Praise God. I'm a little stirred up tonight. Thank the Lord. Amen. We're living these dark days. But man, what an opportunity we have. Like Elijah. What an opportunity we have to shine a bright light and be a light in the dark. I see here in verse number one, let me give them to you real quick before we go home. I see, I see a couple descriptions of an effective light. How to be a light. In a dark world. What, what, are, what are some descriptions? If we were going to describe the man, and when I say man, I want you to know man or woman, uh, the human. If we were going to describe the person that was a shining light for God, how would we describe him? What would we say about him? Number one, I think the first thing I'd say about him is this. You can't sway him with culture. You cannot sway him with 
the culture. I want you to notice the very first words that Elijah says to Ahab. He comes up here, and we don't know how he got there. We don't know where he came from. All we know, when we get into verse number 1, is Elijah is standing before the king, and here's what he says. He said, As the Lord God of Israel liveth. Now I want you to stop right there. Let's just take that in and soak that in just for a minute. Can I tell you what was going on in the culture that day? Everybody was a Baal worshiper. It was not the popular position of Elijah's day to believe in Jehovah God. In fact, Jezebel had killed what she thought was all the prophets of of Jehovah. All of God's prophets were slain. What she thought, there were still some, and God had a reserve, and He always has a remnant. He always has a reserve. They think they might can wipe us out, but they can't wipe us out. They can't do it. The devil can't do it. He can't do it. But they can try. But it wasn't the popular thing. Everybody worshipped Baal. Everybody served Baal. Baal was the fertility god or the god of harvest or some say he was a sun god. If you read different books, you'll find different things about him. He was just kind of whatever god you wanted him to be. Whatever you needed him to be. He was just the god that blessed you and let you do whatever. And, all, and I let you study on Baal. There's some wicked stuff going on with Baal. And, and no wonder the depraved men wanted to go after uh, go after Baal. It's no different than today. People don't want the real God. They don't want Jehovah God. They don't want the God of the Bible. They want some God they can bend and flex and move that is uh, for everything they're for and against everything they're against. A God they can, they can just kind of uh, you know, uh, mold into their own image instead of a God that will mold you into His image. Conform you like Him. They want a God they can make like themselves. That's exactly what Baal was to them. And it was the popular thing. Everybody was a Baal worshiper. Everybody did. Everybody went to the groves and everybody went to the high places and everybody worshiped Baal. And because it was not very popular, if somebody found out you worshiped Jehovah God or you were standing for the Lord, you were killed, you were put to death. And so all the prophets of Jehovah were replaced with prophets of Baal and the worship of Baal permeated almost every single corner of the kingdom. It was absolutely unpopular and super dangerous to publicly proclaim that you were loyal to Jehovah God. Yet here is Elijah, a man who could not be swayed by the culture, a man who didn't get up in the morning and stick his finger in the air and find out which way the wind was blowing and find out what culture was doing today. Can I tell you something? If you tie yourself to this world, you're going to be up and down and in and out and left and right. This world can't figure out what they're doing and what's cool now won't be cool later and what was right now will be wrong later and what was wrong is going to be right now. This world don't know what's up. And I tell you, right in the middle of that, while everybody else in the world is playing make-believe with their idol God, here comes Elijah and he said, as the Lord God of Israel lives... He's alive. You can, may act, you can act like he's dead. Listen, you can worship other gods if you want to. Listen, you can snub your nose up at Jehovah God, but I'm here to tell you, God is alive. He's alive. You can play make-believe if you want to, but he is alive. And Elijah would not be moved by the culture that he lived around. That's the kind of person that will change the atmosphere of a wicked society. That's the kind of person that can change a home. That's the kind of person that can change a church. That's the kind of person that can change a community. That can change a school. That can change a job atmosphere. You know what that kind of person is? It's the kind of person that won't play along to get along. They're not trying to politic and make everybody happy. They're not trying to win miscongeniality. They're not trying to win friends and influence people. They are bedrock set in their conviction that God is God and they will will not back up one centimeter on it. And here comes Elijah. He said, you can play around with all your prophets and you can have your groves and your high places and you can build every statue you want to. You can do all that. But God, Jehovah God is alive. He's the only one that is. And he would not be swayed by the culture. 
You can't make a difference for Jesus and be the one that goes along with the flow of society. It's amazing to me how, how young people, they, and they just don't know, they're naive, and they learn, and it's just a part of growing up, but it's amazing to me how they, they just want to be different. And they want to be different. I don't want to be, I'm not going to conform. I don't want to be like everybody else. And so to be different, they go and be like everybody else. They got to wear what everybody else wears and talk like everybody else talks and watch what everybody else watches. And they're so worried about being uncool and being unpopular and being awesome. I'm going to tell you something. Don't even worry about the crowd. Make up your mind that you're going to live for Jesus because He's living for you. And the gods of this world, the little G-O-D-S gods, they are just that. They're not real. Idols are nothing and they are not real and they will leave you empty and broken and unsatisfied and they can't do anything for you. They don't have any ears to hear you when you cry. They don't have any hands to pick you up when you fall. Hey, they don't have a mouth to speak peace into your heart and into your soul when you're in trouble. There's only one God that can do that and make up your mind you're going to live for Him no matter what this world does. And I'm not going along with it. They're, listen, they say we're crazy. You know this world thinks we're crazy, don't you? They think we're absolutely crazy for what we believe. But listen, I don't care. I am not going along with what they say. I don't care how crazy this world thinks we are. They cannot have my Bible. They cannot have my church. They cannot have my home. They cannot have my mind. They cannot have my body. It belongs to God, Jehovah God. He gets it all. Amen. Say, what do they think about me? Who gives a rip what they think about you? Amen. Who cares? They're worshiping some false god anyway that don't even exist. It's got a bunch of devils behind it is all it is. Don't bow just because everybody else is. Be different. Stand for Jesus. Stand for God. Don't be swayed with the culture. It's amazing how people get caught up in so many fads. It's all the time. Man, fads come and fads go. Man, look at old pictures of your parents and grandparents. They looked foolish, didn't they? Hair and the big bell bottoms and all that kind of stuff. Man, you ain't got to live. You ain't got to live in the fashion. I'm not saying let's all go look like Little House on the Prairie or anything. But God, help us. When we're just controlled, that's what controls us. you got to check TikTok to see what you're supposed to be doing next. Man, God, help us. Don't get your cues from this world. Get your cues from the Word of God. You'll never be a world changer. You'll never be a game changer. You'll never be a light shining in a dark world as long as you just want to go along with this world and what it does. This world's going to hell. You want to go along with this world? They're going to hell is where they're going. You can follow them all the way there if you want to, but I don't think I will. I think I'll stand and say, I know that my God is real. And that's the one I'll be serving. You can't sway them with culture. This kind of goes along with it, but I'll, I'll give you a second one here. Not only can you not sway them with culture, but you can't scare them with criticism. Tell you something else about a, <clears throat> about a, a, a light shining in a dark world. You can't scare them with criticism. God, look, look at what he says. Look, 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 look at the next thing he says. He says, The Lord God of Israel liveth, he said, Before whom I stand. Ooh, I like that. I like that a lot. Look at what he just said. He said, Before whom I stand. It's amazing. <laughs> oh, Ahab's thinking, Don't you know who you're standing in front of? I'm the king of Israel. And Elijah says, Oh, I know who I'm standing in front of. He said, I know who's watching me. He said, King, you might, you might be king of this little territory right here. He said, but I know the king who put you on the throne. I, I know the one who's not in charge of just this little strip of land, these little ten tribes. He said, I know the one who's in charge of it all. I know the one who's in control of it all. And that is who I am standing in front of. Elijah was 
not primarily concerned with standing for it. He wasn't afraid of Ahab. He wasn't scared of Ahab. He wasn't scared about what people were going to say about him or what people were going to think about him because he knew that he was standing in the very presence of Jehovah God. He didn't care what anybody said about him because he was standing before an audience of one. There might have been the king and there might have been that wicked queen and there might have been soldiers and guards and there might have been all kind of royalty all around when he stood before the king that day, but that's not who he was concerned with. He didn't care what their opinion was of him. All he cared about was who he was serving. That's who he was standing in front of. Listen, you can't scare a guy that's more afraid of God than afraid of anybody else. The fear of the Lord will save you from a lot of silly fears. I'm scared of what people will say about it. I'm scared of passing that track. I'm scared of telling somebody. I'm scared of talking to somebody. You get scared of God real good, and that won't even matter. Amen. I mean, that's how I was raised. I had a fear of dad. And that fear of dad kept me from being afraid of anything else. A lot of silly stuff. You know, kids, they, they get scared of the monster in the closet or the shadow outside or something like that. I wasn't scared of any of them things because I was scared of my daddy. And when I'd go in daddy's room, he wasn't one of them and said, all right, it's fine, you little buddy, you just get up here in the bed. Now, y'all might do that, and that's probably the right way to do it, all right? I'm not saying he did it right, but what I'm saying is, he didn't, man, he would say, boy, you better get back in that bed right now, don't you get up. And so I thought, whatever that monster in the closet can do to me, it's not near as bad as what my dad can do. <laughs> whatever that shadow outside can do to me, I promise you, ain't near as bad as what my dad might be able to do to me. And so that fear of dad took away a lot of other silly, stupid fears out of my life. And you get scared of God and you be only concerned and afraid of what He thinks and what He says. And that one day, you're going to have to stand before God and give an account. And, and I don't want to stand before God as a compromiser and tell God I was more scared of what the president said. I was more scared of what the governor said. I was more scared of what the deacon said. I was more scared of what the Sunday school teacher said. I was more scared of what the next door neighbor said. I don't want to be more scared of them things. I have a holy fear of God. And so you say whatever you want to say about me you can talk about me and do whatever you want to do but to be judged as Paul said by you is a very small thing why? because he knew he's going to stand before God one day being judged by God is the biggest deal in the world don't matter what everybody says about you what does God say about you and that's where Elijah was he said I stand before God I made me think of Moses' parents you remember the, 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 they said you kill the firstborn Son, throw them in the river. You got to kill them. But the Hebrews 11 tells us about the parents of Moses that they did not fear the wrath of the king. They weren't afraid. They were more afraid of disobeying God than they were of some earthly pharaoh. I mean, we get so concerned about what people think about us and what they have to say about us that we don't even consider the fact that God's watching you. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. He's watching every step you take, every move you make. He's watching you. Man, let's move. Let's live. Let's serve in the fear of God. Not in the fear of man. Fear of man, it just brings a snare, don't it? It'll trap you. It'll paralyze you. It'll immobilize you and keep you from doing what you need to do for God. Don't be afraid of man. Be afraid of God. Well, when I was thinking about Elijah being a light in this dark world, and I was thinking about a light. What is a light? What's a light for God? What does, he, what does he look like? Well, I said you can't sway him with culture. You can't scare him with criticism. And let me give you this last one, and I'll be done tonight. You, 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 can't, you can't stop him from caring. And I want to explain that. Let me show you something. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to show you a little something here and I'm going to be honest I, got, I bought about that many books on Elijah and First Kings and all this kind of stuff ain't nobody says this alright so I may be way off so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what Brother Andrew talked about Sunday school this morning I'm going to prophesy and you judge alright you judge I'll prophesy you judge we'll see if this is right or not I don't know this is just this is just how the Lord gave it to me this week it helped me alright so maybe it'll help you but I'm interested in Elijah's message. So, so we already got up to the point where, uh, as the Lord God of Israel liveth, he said, before whom I stand. But now here's the message. 
Here, here's the message. He said, There shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. So here's the message that he came to deliver. It's not going to rain. A drought. And there was a drought for three years in the land of Israel. No rain. And, and, and you say, well, that's bad. No, no, it's really bad. That's, that's, that's food. That's crops. That's, that's, that's livelihood. That's everything. That's, that's, like, that's an economic collapse. That is a crisis of food supply crisis. You talk about supply chain issues, stuff like that. I mean, it would just be the worst thing. If it stops raining, then everything, everything halts. People die. Um, famine, drought, all these things, just awful things that are taking place here. This is the worst judgment that could be proclaimed on them. But I, I'm interested in this. I'm, in, I'm interested in, in this. Here's what I'm just looking through here. You judge, all right? But what, where did he get this from? Because what got me was the end of verse number one. He says, uh, there should not be dew nor rain these years. He said, but according to my word. Now, most prophets, they, they come and say, according to God's word. According to the word of God. They would say something like, uh, the Lord God of Israel has spoken and here's what he says. Here's what God said. Usually what would happen in these prophetical situations, and it does when the water gets turned back on in chapter 18, but usually what would happen is something like this. something God would speak to the prophet and the prophet would go stand in front of the king and he would proclaim what God had told him. He's just the, he's just the mouthpiece. He's just the messenger boy, right? But I'm interested in why it says, according to my word. Where, is, where, where did God tell him this? What's going on? We don't know. We, we, a lot of the pieces of the puzzle because he just pops onto the scene and gives this message. Uh, but a thousand years later, after about a thousand years after uh, this was recorded in 1 Kings 17, the New Testament actually gives us a little bit of insight on what was going on here. And it's in the book of James. Will you go there with me just one, for just one second? The book of James, chapter number 5. And as I piece these two scriptures together, I was interested to note this, and I'm on, I'll just show you this and I'll be done. There's a little bit of additional information. The Bible says in James 5 and verse 17, James 5, 17, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. And here it is. He prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. Now we find, we find out here in James 5 that the reason it quit raining is because Elijah prayed that it would not rain. Have y'all follow me so far? But I want you, there's no record in the Old Testament of that prayer. We have Elijah's prayer when he prayed fire down from heaven. We don't have Elijah's prayer when he prayed that it might not rain. But then here's just what I saw this past week. Here's maybe where I'm way off base. I preached through the book of James and I didn't catch it then, but I wasn't looking at it really from this perspective. You see what you think. But as I began to just look at this context here in James chapter 5, why does he bring up Elijah? Why does he, just out of the blue, he brings up Elijah? And James does that. He'll bring up some Old Testament characters as Abraham and Rahab and different ones as illustrations, but Job even. Uh, but why, 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 why here? Why this story right here? That's well, a mighty act of prayer. James is talking about prayer. But what's the context of, his, of prayer here? Well, you've got to go back to about verse number 13 and 14, about those being afflicted and those being sick. He says in verse 14, he said, Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. He said, verse 15, And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. The Lord shall raise them up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And then we're introduced to Elijah. It was a man subject to like passions. 
as we are. He prayed earnestly that it might not rain, rain not on the earth by the space of three years, six months. And he prayed again, and the earth and the heaven uh, gave rain, and the earth brought forth their fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. You say, now why would you read all that? I want to tell you why. Because the context of the prayer in this chapter is praying for somebody that is sick, praying for somebody that is in sin and trying to convert them from the error of their way. Somebody that is sick, and maybe possibly the text would lend itself to believe that not only are they sick, but they're sick maybe because of sin. Because he says that they would not only receive bodily healing, but if they had committed sins, it would be forgiven for them. So what you have in the context here is James is talking about not just prayer, but specific prayer. Praying for an individual that is sick. Praying for an individual that needs healing. Praying for somebody that is in sin and needs correction. And in the midst of all this, James tells us that Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. Now, every time I've read that before, and even when I preached it before, I always just kind of, and, and I, don't believe, I don't believe we're way off base here, but I always just kind of in a generic way. So, well, you know, Elijah was a man like us. You know, he put his robe on one leg at a time just like us, you know, and he struggled with temptation and he struggled with fear. And he did. He, Elijah had depression times and he had high times and low times and good times and bad times. And I thought, well, Elijah was just like us. We're just like him. You can pray. Elijah can pray. You can pray. We all can pray because Elijah's a man just like us. But, but, but what about the context here? He said he was a man of like passions. That word passions means feelings. It means affections. In the context here, you have people that are burdened for people that are sick. James is speaking to people that would be burdened for people that are in error and in sin. And they want them to come back and get right. And I think if we were to leave it in a strict context here, I think what we would find out that James isn't just speaking generically of common temptations and struggles that we have and, and Elijah had too, but specifically of being burdened over sickness and sin. Not for an individual, but for an entire nation. See, Elijah... Just like you and I might get burdened over somebody that's in sin or somebody that's sick, Elijah was burdened over an entire nation. You say, how so? Well, he was subject to the same feelings we are. Like passion, just like us. You ever get burdened over somebody? He wouldn't be the first prophet to ever get burdened over, over his country. Jeremiah had eyes like a fountain and wept. He wrote a whole book called Lamentations. Habakkuk, the prophet, he complains to God. says, God, don't you see the shape? My country is in. Why aren't you doing anything? And we know that one of the contributing factors to Elijah's depression in chapter number 19, when God comes to Elijah and says, What are you doing here? Elijah says, I'm very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. He said, They've torn down your altars, God. He said, They're worshiping Baal. There's wickedness everywhere. He said, I'm burdened. Elijah was a man that was burdened over God's people. And he looked at God's promises in the Word of God. And he looked at what Moses wrote down. I'm sure he had to have looked at what Moses wrote down. In Deuteronomy 11, when Moses said, Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived, and that you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them, and then the Lord's wrath be killed against you. And he shut up the heaven, that there be no rain that the land yield not her fruit unless you perish quickly from off the good of the land. The Lord God giveth you. You know, Elijah didn't just step in there and say, I'm going to use my powers to shut the faucets of heaven off. No. He was a man that was burdened. He was a man that prayed. He got, and that, by the way, that's what praying is. It's claiming the promises of God. Elijah just didn't just some willy-nilly put some little voodoo hex on the nation of Israel. Elijah walked into the throne room and claimed the promises of God. He said, God, you said if our nation got wicked enough, you would shut off the rains from heaven. 
And Elijah was burning over his nation and he was burning over his country and he claimed the promises of God. And that's why when he stepped into Ahab's throne room, he said it's not going to rain for the space of three years, not according to God's Word, but according to my Word. Why? Because he prayed and he got his answer from God. He said this is a direct result and a direct answer to the prayer that I have prayed to God. It's according to my prayer. It's according to my God. Now, what would make a man do that, knowing he had to live there in the midst of all that famine, right there with everybody else? I'll tell you what it was. It's because he never could stop caring. He was a man that was not given over to apathy. He was a man who cared deeply about what was going on. He couldn't turn his back. He couldn't ignore it. He couldn't just say, well, if that's what people want to do, this world's crazy, just let them do it. No. I'm going to tell you something about a light that will shine in darkness. It's somebody that cares. Somebody that gets a burden. Somebody that will pray. Somebody that will claim the promises of God. Somebody say, I know this world's wicked. I know my home's a mess. I know our church is cold. I know this is what's going on. And I am not just going to sit by and let it happen. I'm going to get on my knees and pray till I hear from heaven. I'm going to claim the promises of God. And I will not be driven into apathy. And there's this zeal for God that drives them, this holy zeal that will not let them go. Jeremiah tried to quit, but he said his word was like a fire. Shut up in my bones. He said, I had to keep preaching. I couldn't stop caring. Couldn't stop carrying the burden. I tell you, that's exactly what a light in the darkness is. Somebody that can't be swayed by the culture. Somebody that can't be scared with criticism. And it's somebody that can't stop caring and having a burden for the place that God has put them in. Are you a light in the darkness? Or are we we blended in and just gave up? I hope not. For the sake of my kids, I hope not. For the sake of my grandkids that may come, I hope not. For the sake of the future generation of this church, I hope not. We need some shining lights that will shine for the Lord.